Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. The following recording is from our Sunday morning gathering. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Well, guys, over the last number of weeks, we've been working through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we made it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and then we backtracked and we jumped back to uh, chapter 5. <laughs> and uh, with that being said, I, I made the statement last week that we were going to take a little bit of a detour, and we're going to take a little bit of a sidestep, if you will, as we step into this Advent season leading up into Christmas and some of the things and the messages that we have prepared. And as I was writing Christmas messages, I realized how closely connected the passage of scripture that I wanted to preach for Christmas was connected to where we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In fact, I believe that, uh, I believe that where we're going is not entirely disconnected from what Paul was dealing with with the Corinthian church. In fact, I think it's the perfect segue of where we were last week to continue on this discussion into 1 John chapter 3. And so last week, if you guys weren't with us, or if you were with us and you weren't paying attention, we were dealing with this topic of unrepentant sin. It was this kind of a, it was this harsh, harsh, maybe not harsh is the right word, but it was severe language that Paul was using to instruct the Corinthian church that they were to remove this unrepentant man from the place of fellowship, uh, to hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, which sounds like Ooh, that's happy. Sign me up for that kind of Christianity, right? Nobody wants to join that club that you just kind of uh, uh, get removed from. Uh, but what was happening there was there was a, a very severe sentence that was being passed on sin because this man was living in unrepentant sin. Uh, he was, uh, there was all kinds of stuff going on, but the church was condoning the sin saying that everything was okay and right with God when it wasn't. And so last week, I, I really kind of hit home on this idea of tolerating the things that God does not and how the world perpetuates this idea of tolerance as a positive virtue, which understanding where people are coming from, uh, you know, listening to, to, to differing views of opinion, those are good attributes. But when it comes to the things that God says to hate, we need to hate the things that God hates, and we need to love the things that God loves. And one of the things that God hates is sin, and he deals severely with it to the point where he gave his own son to deal with it on a cross. And so if we begin to condone the things that God has deemed unjust, we find ourselves in a dangerous place. And that's why the severity of what Paul was dealing with with was coming forth in this language. And we talked about it last week. I would encourage you guys, um, jump on our podcast. We have our messages from previous weeks online, and I think it would, uh, I think it would do us well to revisit that as we uh, even, uh, or at least keep it in mind as we jump into our text this morning. And so last week I, I hit home on this pack on this fact, and we're going to hit home on it again today, that Jesus didn't die just to forgive you of your sins. He died to save you from them. He gave himself as a ransom to free you from its bondage and its power. 
And it's not only hypocritical, I believe it's proper blasphemy to claim forgiveness in Christ and go on living in habitual sin. Does that make sense? That sounds harsh. That's intense. But if we go on living in the sin that Jesus died to set us free from, if it's a continual pattern that we're not seeing progress or repentance or even remorse from, it's no longer, it's no longer just hypocritical living. I believe it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and his regenerative work to say that, God, you can forgive me, but you can't set me right. You can't change my life. You can, you can forgive me, but I'm, my life and my actions aren't going to change. So we're going to jump into this today. I believe it's an affront on the cross of Christ to allow Jesus to save your soul and not allow him to change the conduct of your life. And this is exactly what the Apostle John is going to remind us of in today's text in 1 John chapter 3. If you guys have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn there to 1 John chapter 3. And in this Advent season, where we remember Christ's coming, his appearing, his incarnation, I want to hone in on this verse in particular. Um, it's actually just the last half of a verse. It's 1 John 3, 8. So we're going we're gonna to kind of set this as a theme for our teaching in this Advent season, but really looking at uh, 1 John 3, 8b as the crux of it. And it is this. It says, The reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. This is the theme of what I want to remember this Christmas season, that Jesus Christ uh, came. He lived, he died, he appeared, and he's coming again, and his primary purpose is this, to destroy the works of the devil. This verse is, is, is full of potential here. One of the things that I think we would be amiss, uh, amiss to skip over is the fact that there is a real enemy, that there is a real devil, there is a real adversary that Jesus has come to destroy the works of. Something to keep in mind. We know that this world is broken. That people are broken. Humanity is sick. There is pain. There's suffering. There's sickness. There's death. All of these things that were not initial part of were not an initial part of God's design for humanity. When we look back at the garden, when it was just us and Him, these things did not exist. And the promise at the end of the book is when we spend forever with Him, these things are not going to exist, but they're here and they're, they're here and evident now. Nobody is denying those things. Pain, suffering, evil really exists in this world. Most of us don't need to look too far outside of ourselves to. To, to be able to come to terms with the fact that there is genuine evil and wrongdoing in this world, right? But even so, all you need to do is turn on the TV. See the atrocities that are taking place across the globe. Not just across the globe, here in our hometown, when there are children neglected, and unfed, when there's war and when there's famine, when there's disaster, 
when there's suffering and sickness and death, people are so quick to blame God for these things. But what we don't understand is that God sees this same mess. He sees the same problem of evil, the same problem of sickness and suffering and injustice and wrongdoing. And he has done something about it. And he's done something about that through his son, Jesus Christ. There is a promise of of an undoing of the devil's work and it comes with the cross. I want to be clear this morning. Tragedy, suffering, sickness, disease, injustice. Everything that is wrong with this current world will one day be made right. And it is not the work of God. These things, sickness, injustice, pain, suffering, all these things. I guess I said suffering like four times in the same sentence. This is not the work of God. It's the work of the devil. That does not mean God can't use what the enemy meant for harm to turn it around for good. And he will 100% use suffering. He will 100% use pain. And he will use, uh, he will use circumstances that are evil in order to bring about his will. That doesn't mean he caused them. We could talk about this for a really long time and we could open all kinds of different hypothetical doors. But I do know this to be true. At the end of the day, he is good. And we have an enemy that isn't. These things, they are the work of the devil. And God is doing something about it. And that's what we're celebrating this Christmas season. It's the hope of things not staying as they are. The hope of Jesus making the wrong things right and destroying the works of the enemy. That is something that we have to celebrate. That is something that we should be excited about. So what are the works of the devil? What are the works of the enemy, of the adversary? Jesus, when he's talking to religious hypocritical leaders back in John chapter 8, he's speaking to the Pharisees, and he's got like this sick burn on them. (laughs) He says this, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. (laughs) He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. This is our enemy. This is, this is the deceiver. This is, this is the father of those that are not following Jesus. This is the devil. He'll go on to label the devil. And that is just some guy with like a pitchfork and like some horns or something like that. But we recognize him as a fraud. He goes on in John 10.10 10 to label him as a thief who wants to kill you, who wants to destroy your life, right? John 10.10 10 says this, that the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. And he contrasts this with the reason that Jesus has come, that he has come that we may have life and have it to the full. But Jesus still comes to bring us life and life to the full by means of destruction. Thankfully, 
Jesus is uh, better at everything that he does than the devil is at the things that he does. Don't get me wrong, the devil's pretty good at stealing. He's pretty good at lying. He's pretty good at destroying things. But Jesus is ultimately a better destroyer than the devil is. Which sounds a little funny to say out loud, but as, as, we, kind of dig in the, as we kind of dig into this, um, Jesus is still better than the devil at destroying things. The devil may be actively trying to destroy you, He's not, he, he won't maybe, he is actively trying to destroy you, but Jesus has already rendered him powerless over his children through his death on the cross. We have two images of destroyers here, one who is interested in destroying your life and another who is destroying the works of the destroyer, and so bam, we have this kind of destroyerception. Got it? <laughs> Everybody tracking with me? Like, you get this? It's, it's a lot of language to, to use to describe two polar opposites, right? But when we're talking about Jesus this morning, I want to talk about him as the destroyer. Jesus, the destroyer. You know, when we sing all those songs about, like, the names of God, you know, like the Prince of Peace, the Great I Am, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and, and you know, we've got, we've got the Christmas ones that are, that are coming up, right? We think about him as Messiah, the, the, the Prince of Peace. <laughs> the government's going to rest upon his shoulder. We don't have a song, a Christmas song at least, about Jesus, the Great Destroyer. Can you write one, Adam? I mean, I'm, I'm expecting like a heavy breakdown in there, right? <laughs> Jesus, the destroyer. This sounds like something I would preach in youth group. Um, <laughs> it's not exactly like the most marketable Christian message, right? We could, we could make a cool like metal graphic and put them on fires and pass them around to people at Christmas time and invite our friends and family to church. Like, hey, come to listen to this great, encouraging, happy Christmas message about Jesus, the destroyer. Woo. <laughs> But I want to be very clear. Jesus wants to destroy your life as well. Nobody wants to say, I got an amen. You just ruined me when I was about to say, nobody's going to say amen to that. Now, now the thunder is uh, taken out of that. But Jesus does. He wants to destroy your old way of life. And he wants to create in you something new, something entirely different, something entirely better. Paul would talk about this as a new creation. He wants you to have life and life abundantly, life to the fullest extent. He's not interested in just making your current mess of a life a little bit better by adding some Jesus dust on it. He's not interested in taking you and your bondage and your sin and your pain and your suffering and just trying to, to, to put a solve on it and make it palatable. Palatable. You guys know what I mean. We're not eating people now. Um, <laughs> he's interested in taking the broken he's interested in taking the wrong and the hurt and everything that is jacked up and making something entirely new out of your life that's why we can't just settle for this idea of adding Jesus to what we've already got going on. Because some of you guys have a good gig going. 
You might enjoy your life, but at the core, at the crux of it, if Jesus is not the center, it will one day come crumbling down. And he knows this, and he knows the deception of the enemy, and he knows the lies of our adversary, and I know that he convinces people that it's okay to just be a good person. But at the end of the day, all of these things are fleeting. All of these things are failing. And he's not interested in just being an addition to what you've got going on. I've, I've referred to it in the past as kind of being like a hot sauce or a condiment, right? We treat Jesus as something that just spices up our life and makes what we got going on a little bit better, right? Have you guys ever had one of those burgers? Like, I love Chick-fil-A. That's not a burger. It's a chicken sandwich. I like Chick-fil-A. People are like, yeah, it's overrated. It's overhyped. I don't know. It's pretty darn good. And my kids will eat it. And they're pretty picky. So, I mean, I think it's, it's definitely got something going there. I love a good just chicken sandwich. But, man, they've got this honey roasted barbecue sauce. You guys are, all of you that just go to Chick-fil-A and get the Chick-fil-A sauce, you're missing out. You're doing it wrong. That's like mayonnaise. Put mayonnaise on your sandwich. That's weird. But you could get honey roasted barbecue sauce. You've got to ask for it. They don't put it out. It's in these little packets. And it's a game changer for me. And it makes my experience at Chick-fil-A, which was arguably pretty good, even if I didn't have the sauce, it takes it up like an infinite number of levels. And analogies break down at all points. But sometimes we cheat Jesus. <coughs> excuse me, simply as like a condiment, as something that's going to elevate our experience. When he's not interested in just making something better, he wants to make something new. He wants to make something different. This is a, this is a great example, and I'm going to see if my brain can work fast enough to track this down. Braden is a good friend of mine. He had a pretty rough car that is scary to drive. <laughs> I've been driving it the last few days, working on it, trying to fix it, and I have resorted to the fact that it is terrifying. <laughs> you poured thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars into this car to have multiple people attempt to fix it. And so I don't know why I thought I have a shop. I can fix it. The professionals couldn't do it. Maybe I can't. But if I try to sell it to you later, it's a great car. <laughs> I'm joking. I wouldn't do that to anybody that I hate, let alone the people that I love. We're going to figure it out. But it got to the place where just putting more stuff in it wasn't helping replacing major components wasn't helping adding things to the vehicle wasn't helping what you needed was an entirely new vehicle that was the only thing that made sense and in the same way with our lives we can't just add spiritual things we can't just add little bits of the gospel and little bits of jesus to try to make what we have finally work you're going to be left disappointed you're going to be left frustrated you're going to uh, it's not going to work out for you what jesus is saying is that it requires complete surrender to him to do something new 
rather than just adding him into what we've already got going on. Jesus, the destroyer. He does want to destroy the work of the enemy. He does want to tear down the things that we have built up. That doesn't mean he wants to rip away your passions. That doesn't, I had a, had a good conversation with a friend that loves snowboarding and loves these other things and uh, you know, had this question about, like, do I have to give these up in order to follow Jesus? Guess what? Uh, I will emphatically say no to that. Sometimes things can become an idol. Sometimes things can get in the way with our relationship with God. But he doesn't completely change. Some people, he will change your personality. But there are passions, there are desires that just need to come into their right place underneath the lordship of Jesus. And he will 100% use your identity and use your passions and reshape them into something that's completely different, completely new in order to bring him glory. Does that make sense? I want to be clear with that. When I'm talking about Jesus tearing down your life and destroying your life, I'm talking about your old pattern of thinking, your old way of living, the conduct that you found yourself in, not necessarily your identity as an individual, not just necessarily your personality. He wants all of that to come into subjection of his lordship, though. We could talk about that for a really long time. But I want to read 1 John 3. 8 is where we've been, but I'm going to read the full verse of Scripture here. It says, The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So what is the devil's work then? It's very clear. It's very evident here in this verse of Scripture. It defines the devil's work as sin. Jesus came to destroy sin in your life, not just free you from it. And this is good news because how many of you guys have ever just tried to stop sinning? Anybody? I have. It, it doesn't work very well. Has anybody ever just tried to white knuckle their way through addiction or white knuckle their way through things that they knew that they were wrong? I used to wake up as a teenager telling Jesus, God, I'm not going to sin today. I'm not going to sin today. I'm not going to sin today. And I thought for sure if I could just make it 24 hours without sinning, then I would have arrived at Christianity and it was going to be like smooth sailing from there on out. I think the only time I probably ever didn't sin for 24 hours was when I had pneumonia and I was asleep for 24 hours. <laughs> Even then, I probably was still sinning. I don't know, we'll we get into all that. But. <laughs> but that's why I'm grateful that it doesn't say that you need to work hard enough, that you need to earn it, that you've got to figure it out in order to get free from sin. No, this is the reason why Jesus came, to destroy sin and its power and its effect in your life. You guys have all heard that God has a plan for your life, right? It's plastered on bumper stickers. You can get it on a Hobby Lobby thing and, you know, it typically takes uh, Jeremiah out of context and slaps it in there and God has this wonderful plan for your life, right? I want to be clear, like God does have a wonderful plan that is perfect in accordance with his will for your life. But how many of you guys know that the enemy also has a plan for your life? 
That we have a real adversary, the devil, that does not want to see you that doesn't want to see you succeed, that wants to see you stay bound, that wants to see you stay addicted, that wants to see you stay depressed, that wants to see you wrapped up in all of these things that are not him. He wants to kill you. We have a real enemy that is out to destroy you. And so many Christians want to pretend like the devil isn't real. That he's some figment or construct of our imagination just there to scare us away from hell or something like that. But the reality is, is that there is an adversary. There is a devil. There is an enemy of your soul and he has a plan for your life and the way that he kills you, the way that he destroys you is through sin. This thing that we've talked about that we've not yet defined, but we're going to here in just a minute. But James 1, 14 and 15 says this, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. That is the progression of our own wants and our own desires that are not subjected to the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is something you need to understand. There are things that you want, there are things that you desire that are not healthy and they are not from God. We don't want to admit this. We don't want to think about this. But our culture says if you want it, it must be true. If you feel it, it's got to be real. If there's a desire that you have, you should chase it because you wouldn't lie to yourself, right? That's, where, well, that's what's perpetuated in media. You don't want to be married anymore? Fine, don't be married anymore. Go sleep with whoever you want to be. Just, you know, do what's right for you. Let your, let, uh, just follow your heart. You don't, you don't feel like being the gender that you are. You can choose whatever of the 17 genders that exist out there right now and sign up for it. And that, that can be you now. You don't feel like something should be right. Well, then it's not. There is, there is no right and wrong anymore. It's all up for personal interpretation. And you see how that breaks down. Because what I say is right and wrong might be different than what Adam says is right and wrong. Most of the time we're on the same page, but <laughs> you get, what happens if my truth says your truth is a lie? Whose truth is true then? It doesn't make sense. There has to be something outside of ourselves that determines right and wrong, good and evil. And that can only be the one that created it all. So why are we talking about sin? Are we talking about this heavy stuff, Pastor Nate? It's Christmas time. We should be talking about like little baby Jesus and the wise men and the shepherds singing, or the shepherds singing, the angels singing over the shepherds. Maybe the shepherds were singing too, right? I don't, I don't know. Shepherds probably sang. They were, do, do they sing like sea shanties? Shepherd shanties? Oh dear. Help me, Jesus. Why aren't, we, why aren't we caught up in all this happy Jesus Christmas stuff? We fail to recognize 
the miracle of the incarnation of God coming as a baby when we fail to recognize the reason for his coming and that was to deal with the problem of sin. If we treat sin like it's no big deal, we cannot celebrate his incarnation, his coming as if it was an important event. They are inherently connected to one another. Sin was such a problem that God saw it and saw that there was a remedy that needed to come, that there was something that needed to change, and he came in and stepped into humanity to deal with it. That is why the incarnation is such a big deal, was because sin was so grievous. They're inherently connected to one another. So let's not let this just be some kind of generic thing that we kind of think about this morning. I want it to hit home. He didn't just come to deal with humanity's sin on a global scale. He came to deal with your sin. He came to deal with my sin. That's very real, that we don't like to talk about. Sometimes we like to think about it in generic terms, about humanity as a whole. But the reality of it is, I have lived my life in such a way I have hurt the Lord's heart with the things that I've said and the things that I've done. I have sinned. And scripture would be quick to tell us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Maybe I haven't cheated on my wife. Maybe I haven't you know, killed somebody or, or all of these different things makes no difference in the eyes of whether or not I'm right with God. We could talk about degrees of sin and things being atrocious and not. The reality is all of us on some degree, on some level, have broken the Lord's heart with our rebellion towards it. And in spite of that, while we were still sinners, hopelessly lost, Christ died for us. And he couldn't have died if he would have never came. And that's what we're celebrating here in this Christmas season. But I want it to be personal. The truth is, I needed rescuing. You need rescuing. And as much as this idea might not sit well with you, you need to know this morning that there is no amount of good that you can do to make up for the fact that you need him. None of us are inherently good people. Which is hard to wrap our minds around. Even the best of us. I know some pretty decent human beings that I would say uh, on our caliber, on our scale, they're, they're pretty great humans. I know some pretty great humans that don't know Jesus. But it isn't just about being a good person because God's standards are higher than the best of human standards. And all of us fall short. Even the best 
human still fall short, still fall short of what God wants from us. Which may seem harsh, may seem ridiculous, but guess what? He makes every provision for us to meet the standards that he has set through what he's done through us in Jesus Christ, through what he's done for us through Jesus Christ. Let's read the rest of 1 John 3 in context. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. We're not going to have time to break this entire thing down. And so tell me to move on, Pastor Nate, if I get too long on one, one particular verse here, because there's so much that I could talk about. But beginning in verse 1, it says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, and we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. What it's talking about here in verses 2 and 3 is actually what uh, we're seeing at the return of Christ, but there is a revelation of who he is. Seeing him as he is, seeing him as he rightfully is, is what provokes us to live pure and holy lives, to live and look like Jesus. We cannot look like him if we don't have a revelation of how good he actually is. I could, oh, we could... We could get on that track. But continuing on in verse 4, it says, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is any one who does not love their brother and sister. That's pretty intense stuff. First thing that I need to highlight here is that not everyone on the face of the earth is a child of God. You might hear that and you may take a step back. That may come as an affront to your sensibilities here, but we always talk about they were such a child of God, such a such a, uh, such a precious child of God. John's very clear here that what determines whether or not somebody is a child of God is that they're born again. In the context that John is referring to here, I want to be clear, is humanity created in his image? All humanity, yes. Did he give himself as a ransom for all humankind? 100% for every tribe and tongue, yes. Did God so love the entire world that he gave his only son? Yes, 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 yes. 
Are we created in his image? Yes, but this title, child of God, is not universally applicable to everyone. There is this requirement to be born again. You've probably heard this language before. It actually is what marks and identifies us as God's children. If we read verses 9 and 10 again, it says, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Know how intrinsically connected it is to do right and to love others. God isn't, I I love that there's the stipulation here. God doesn't care about how much good and right you do in following the rules if it lacks love for other people. Does that make sense? Oh man, we could talk about this for a long time. It's not just about following the rules though. It's not measuring up to a bunch of thou shalt nots. In fact, John isn't even teaching sinless perfection here like you might think he is. Can we, can we get an amen to that? Can we breathe a sigh of relief in this room? I know that he's not saying that if you're still struggling with something or that, that you know what, you're, you're fighting through some temptations, that somehow you are not a child of God. This is, this is pretty severe and harsh language, but I know this to be true because he says earlier in this letter in 1 John 1, 8 through 10, he says, if we claim to be without sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and he will forgive us all of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. What what John is talking about here is living in continual habits of sin where there's no evidence of change. What he's talking about, people living the same way that they were before they were saved. There has to be a distinction about who you are now and who you were before Jesus. There has to be some some identifying marks, what what Jesus would go on in his teaching on the Sermon of the Mount. He He would talk about it as fruit, as evidence of an internal change. talking about continual patterns of sin in our lives. These are the things that Jesus came to deal with. The text blatantly tells us that Jesus is very much concerned with our conduct and what we do, with how we treat others, with how we love one another. Jesus is not interested in saving your soul without also changing your life. And too many of us want this idea of Jesus just saving us when we die, but we don't want him to transform us here and now. We have areas of our heart that are reserved and cut off and saying, God, you can can kind of do this and you can do this, but you can't ask me to do that. I refuse to do it, but I'm still going to be okay because, you know, I said a prayer and I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Jesus isn't about that way of thinking There's a world 
out there that isn't interested in a Christ that can just forgive you in the future without changing you here and now. I know I was fundamentally opposed to Christianity as a teenager and in my adolescence um, because I had seen so many different Christians that had said yes to, to, to salvation. I had been around so many different people that you know, claimed the Jesus thing. And, and if you were to ask them where they were going to go when they died, they would without hesitation say heaven. But I saw zero fruit of change in their lives. They were the same addicted, bound, greedy, mean people. And I didn't see a difference in them like I knew should have been there. So I actually, actually kind of developed this idea of God as either one, he wasn't powerful enough to do anything about anybody's life. He wasn't good enough to do anything about stuff in people's lives or he didn't exist at all. Certainly wasn't a God that I wanted to follow. Certainly wasn't a God I wanted anything to do with because of the hypocrisy that I had encountered in his people. It wasn't just me. There's still a whole world of people out there that are observing those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. And they're closely examining our lives to see if we actually live differently because of who we claim we serve. So 1 John 3, when it's speaking about the works of the devil that Jesus came to destroy, he's talking about patterns of sin that continue to keep us in bondage. And I want to be clear this morning, if this is you, if you're, if you're struggling in consistent, repetitive cycles of sin, this is not a message of condemnation this morning. It's harsh, it's severe, but I believe that there is grace and his spirit is here wanting to initiate change. There is hope in this house today. There's hope in the celebration of his coming. And you need to know that there is power in his name and in his blood to free us from the bondage of sin. 1 John 3, 4, it says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. What does that even mean? What does is, what is lawlessness even mean? We're not talking about like a, a wild, wild west. You know, we're not talking about, um, you know, the U.S. Constitution or, you know, some kind of set of laws that have been passed down from the Supreme Court. What we are talking about here is God's law or what I would refer to as his will for all creation. I don't want us to be so limited in scope in thinking that we're just talking about maybe the Ten Commandments or something. We're talking about Old Testament references where, guys, you're not allowed to cut your beards or something like that when we're talking about God's law. I'm talking about his will and his desire for all of creation. And to disregard his will, to disregard his law, is to disregard the maker and the creator himself. It's to disregard the God of all the universe. When we disregard what he said and what he's spoken and what he's asking of us, we disregard him. What's important to you 
It's almost as if, it's almost as if we're saying to God, what's important to you and what you've said is important to you is no big deal when we don't make it a big deal in our lives. Does that, does that track with you today? Does that make sense with you this morning? I actually really like how John Piper phrased this when I was kind of reading commentaries. He said this, lawlessness is living as though your own ideas are superior to God's. Lawlessness says, God may demand it, but I do not prefer it. Lawlessness says, God may promise it, but I don't want it. Lawlessness replaces God's law with my contrary desires. It's the rebellion against the right of God to make laws that govern over his own creation. It's this deception that somehow we are smart and wise enough to determine right and wrong for ourselves. And we climb up on a throne that's reserved for the creator and the maker of the universe himself. And we begin to sit down on this throne and we, we begin to decide what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. And say, you know what, God, what you determine and what you say and what you've already spoken is not as important as what I feel and what I think. If that's not blasphemous, I don't know what is. Sin is lawlessness. First John 3, 5 says, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. So we see two things here. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, which we understand to be sin, which we understand to be lawlessness, what we understand to be the determining factor for us, uh, for us is He came to deal with sin. And he came to take away our sin personally. This is the reason why he came to deal with it once and for all. We're going to prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning. To take communion together. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to find more of our messages, get connected with our church, or partner with us financially, you can find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Thanks again, and have a blessed week.